and welcome to yet another awesome episode of Living It Up in Lion City, a podcast about life in the sunny island of Singapore, where friends and I talk about what goes on in this little red dot we call home. With me here, guess who's back? Back again. <laughs> Shady's back. So I'm Suraj. <laughs> yes, this is Suraj, uh, you know, a guest who's never been on the podcast before. That's bullshit. <laughs> Sounds like Raj, but it's not Raj. It's Suraj now. <laughs> so Suraj, welcome back. Thanks. Thanks for inviting yeah. me again. How's it going, buddy? All good, all good. Uh, I just finished another book, The Biography of Sir Alex Ferguson. Oh, right. Isn't that that, that football guy? The Man United legend, legendary yes, I'm, manager. I'm, I'm totally interested in everything sports Yeah, related. it sounds like it, right? Uh, I'm not going to go any further then. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. So it has been like a good nine months since you were in the last podcast episode. Um, I did get a tweet. About? You know, about where's Raj? Oh, someone misses me. Yeah, and I was like, wow, okay, so you have like one more fan than I do. <laughs> Mine being zero. And... And, but then as it turns out, it was your cousin, Vish. Uh, oh, well. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. Um, folks, yeah, uh, the, the, today's episode is all about the bicentennial. Um, as you probably know, um, the year 2019 is being celebrated as Singapore's bicentennial, which is 200 years of the founding of yep. modern Singapore. Um, if you have been listening to our podcast, um, we broached the topic of the history of Singapore uh, way back in December 2018. But wasn't that more of like the folklore and... Well, it started off as folklore. Till we got really interested. Yeah, and then like it just went into like this place where we didn't realize, we, like there was so much information we didn't know about. And um, as it turns out, a couple of months later, they um, announced the bicentennial. So we are guessing they actually stole our idea. I'm pretty sure, you know, I'm pretty <laughs> sure there's some dude in Singapore Tourism Board who listened to our podcast and like, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. You know, let, let me set the record straight. <laughs> and thus the Bicentennial campaign was born. Um, but, you know, those of are listening, if you haven't checked out the Bicentennial programs that have been happening all across the island, please do so. It is very enlightening. It is very fascinating. And it's, it's a great retelling of the uh, history of Singapore. Well, you don't really have to be a history nerd or yeah. anything like that. But the way they actually have done certain programs... It, it's really interesting. It is, it is. And we will talk about this in some detail later on in this episode. Now, um, sometime early this year, um, Suraj uh, started reading this book called... 200 Years of Singapore and UK History. Yes, yes. So the book is called 200 Years of Singapore and the United Kingdom. And the book is a compendium of essays um, about different facets of Singapore's history from 1819, which is the founding of modern Singapore, until present day. Um, Suraj, do you want to talk a bit about what you read? Yeah, so um, before I go into what I read, one thing I really like about the book was that it was written by two different... Uh, okay, it was written by many scholars from a Singaporean point of view and from a British point of view. Yes. And they're always... I wouldn't say they're arguing, but they just leave it up to the user to think or rather have their own opinion. Yeah. And that's what I found really interesting about the book, right? Because once again, I mean, as a foreigner, my my brush with Singapore's history has been casual at best, you know, based on informal conversations with you and with other friends. Um, and then afterwards, once I started showing some interest in, you know, uh, the historical happenings of Singapore, 
um, there has been a certain narrative, you know, that that we read about, um, that we learn by osmosis. This book brings some very interesting perspectives because, as you said, it takes like you know the Singapore side in some respects, and then it talks about stuff from the uh, British perspective, and and there's a lot of stuff in between too. So one one thing I actually um, sorry to interrupt you no. there, but one thing I really got interested was, or rather taken aback, was when you told me the what was it the Indian National Army. Yes, that that was actually created in Singapore rather than India. Yes, I was shocked by that. Fun fact, folks: the Indian National Army was founded in Singapore, and there is a monument um, to commemorate it uh, somewhere in the city. And they actually do have uh, the INA's. Uh, yeah, there's a history. Yeah, so there's like it's written this bronze book, so it looks like a book, and uh, you know it has the history of it on it. So, um, yeah, and that's like fascinating. And these are like some of those historical tidbits that um, does show up in many history books, but it's not one of those things that the average person living in Singapore knows about. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like, you know, after uh, Suraj read the book, I, you know, uh, I borrowed it and I still have it and I'm not going to give it back to him. Um, <laughs> it's okay. I'm going to take the 700 years of Singapore from you. <laughs> oh, yeah. We should talk about that once we, uh, you know, finish this one. Um, but yeah, it, it was such a great book. And I do recommend this for anyone who is interested in the history of Singapore. And so, uh, Raj, so Suraj, <laughs> um, what did you think about the whole thing? So the book basically says 200 years of UK and Singapore or Singapore and UK. But they start off from pre-1819. Yeah. So they start off like 1400s or was it 1200? 1200s. 1200s, yeah. Where the first founder of Singapore would say, but it might Sung be wrong. <laughs> but it might be wrong because there have been history uh, bits and pieces where it says that Singapore has risen and fallen over the past, I don't know, century or more than a century of at least three or four times. Yeah. And the only recorded history was when Sang Nila Utama came to Singapore. Correct. And, and that's that's the part that I, I was actually kind of interested. So there's no written history from pre-Sang Sang Nila Utama. So Suraj, you know, before all of this, and even before the time when we, you know, talked about Singaporean folklore, um, you know, when you're studying about history or when you're talking or learning about history. So you mean what, back in secondary school when there was this history lessons or social studies lesson that yeah, we have so to Yeah, so like, learn. was this covered? I mean, was it like mentioned in passing even? So it was mentioned, but imagine your social studies book or history books, uh, if you're not majoring in history. Okay. So they did mention Sang Lina Otama and that's it. They just moved on from there. He founded, he kind of founded modern Singapore. They didn't even mention modern. Yeah. They just said founded Singapore. And then next thing you know, fast forward to 18, 1819 when Sir Stanford Raffles came in and they apparently said Singapore was his baby, whatever. And then they just fast forwarded again to um, the war. Yep. In 1942 to 1945. Yeah. And then fast forwarded again uh, after the war, fast forwarded to the separation, the getting into Malaysia and getting kicked out from Malaysia. Yep. And then fast forwarded again to 1965 when we were independent. Yeah. And then they were just focusing on that part after. Okay. And on how it grew and what it is now and certain steps that were taken. Right. But in my opinion, they actually did not, they did not deep dive into yep. the history as much. Yeah. It's just, it's all very fast paced. And if you were to really be interested in history, you'll have to go and either major in history yeah. or 
have your own side time or rather have your own interest in it and go to the library or internet and just Google things up. Yeah. And I think a lot of his learning of history in Singapore, you know, prior to 2019 was exactly, as you said, all about, you know, someone being personally invested in the topic and, you know, doing it for themselves and then talking to everyone in a coffee shop or in a bar and have all of his listeners be bored to tears because, <laughs> you know, of that. Shit. Because they're not really interested in yeah, history. Right. We just want to not talk about anything serious because you're at a bar and you just want to joke around. And yeah, and then this one dude is like, hey guys, remember 1937? <laughs> and, um, but I think this is the most interesting part about this year, 2019. Early this year and even in 2018. Okay, so I want, I want to talk about our recording in December 2018 when we did Singapore in Folklore. When I talked about how the last king of Singapore um, you know, went up north and founded Malacca. And for us, it was like a heart-stopping moment. Like, right? What the fuck? Because, right? And, that happened? Right? So, and at the time, and I remember right afterwards, we went to a bar to meet our friends. Yeah. And, you know, we were we were talking about this. We're like, yo, bro, like, guess what? Guess what we found today? out. Right? And of course, everybody was like, yeah, whatever, man. <laughs> right? But the point was, um, it wasn't common knowledge at the time. And we felt like we were privy to this, you know, treasure trove of, you know, special knowledge that nobody else could tap into. And, um, but since this bicentennial celebrations and programs were happening, this kind of information, these tidbits and all of these historical narratives are coming to the fore. You know, it is uh, being talked about in the public space, online and offline. Um, I follow the bicentennial Facebook page and- Oh, so do I. Yeah, and the thing, if you remember, you know, in the early months, people would put something up saying that, oh, you know, Singapore is more than this. And then you'd have all these, you know, Facebook uncles talking about, oh, where's my CPF and all that shit, right? <laughs> well, they'll, they'll always make it political. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. Oh, and, yeah, I mean. <laughs> but then I've noticed a change, you know, over the months that the Bicentennial Facebook page has been actively posting. So over the last couple of months, I've been seeing more nuanced discussions about history and people now knowing about, you know, Malacca being part of Singapore's history, people knowing about the different things that happened before 1819 between 1819 and 19, you know, 42 and all that stuff. So I can see that the Bicentennial has been um, like, it has been like a positive experience for a lot of people, right? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, like uh, if I'm not wrong, most of us, whenever the government initiates something, something new, it's all about education. Mm. And as humans, we are not really acceptive of change. That is true. That is fair. So what the Facebook page actually did was, you know, it's showing up on your face, on your face, on your face. Or, and and sooner or later, you'll be like, okay, fine. You're tearing me down. Let's check it out what it is about. And then it turns out to be like, oh, this is actually pretty interesting. Yeah. And and then it ends up being an awesome conversation. Um, the reason I bring it up is because, um, you know, um, I've had conversations with some of our friends, one of whom was uh, part of an earlier episode. And he was convinced that this was a government conspiracy to win the elections. <laughs> I, 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 I want to say who that person that I know, <laughs> but I'm trying not to mention his name. Sean. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's like, and this was sometime around February or March, you know, like just when this thing was starting. So I asked him, you know, what his opinion was, because like I was super interested in because like I, I love history and, you know, I love the direction this is going. But then he just gave me this, very cynical outlook, cynical viewpoint as to what this is about. And this is just about, you know, influencing the elections and you can't trust the government. Where's my CPF and all this <laughs> shit? You know? And um, 
uh, I don't know. And, and you, I'm, I'm sure you've gotten this, right? So when you're talking about this, because you were also as invested as I was. And, um, you know, when you talked about this to, you know, the friends that we know or other friends, like what was their reaction early on? So early on, most of them, uh, so certain things that I say, they would be like, oh, okay. But then as I, as I you know, continue to mumble or drag on, they'll be like, they'll, they'll basically tell me, dude, can you shut the fuck up already and talk about something else now? <laughs> so the problem was not the stories. I think the problem was our delivery. Right? Yeah, perhaps. Because <laughs> my problem was that I get like unreasonably excited and I'm like, hey guys, <laughs> like even my girlfriend, you know, she now has this, um, you know, switch where she just shuts off. <laughs> and I, I can see this, you know, glazed look in her eyes when I start talking. But then um, to be honest, I think Junior is the one who's quite interested as well. Yes, yes. So if you speak to him and, but then he's got his own opinion. Okay. And his opinion is more towards the government is not actually putting focus onto the real stuff that had that had happened. Okay. And it's more trying to just let what has happened be, I mean, happen and just move on. And because no one is asking the questions. Right. And the government's on, the government is basically not answering those questions. So, so the bicentral, in my opinion, is basically trying to sort of answer certain questions. Yeah. But I wouldn't say all of it, but I, I guess it's still trying to educate the public. For example, the, um, the stuff at uh, Fort Canning uh, Center. So the one that we went for. Um, the bicentennial experience. Yes. So that was really amazing. Oh, in, yeah. in my opinion, I'm not sure about you. It was amazing. It was just mind-blowing. It also like validated... <sighs> my suspicions that they totally stole our idea. <laughs> I swear to God, like there were some, you know, stories that they were uh, talking about, they're showing, right, as we went on through the exhibition. And I'm like, motherfuckers, we did the same. <laughs> we did that before. <laughs> so, but, so uh, folks, we just have to tell you that um, yeah. the experience itself, it's about an hour, and a, an hour and a half. Yeah. So you go in, you start off as how Sang Nila Utama came to Singapore. And they actually did mention the last king of Singapore running away from Singapore and uh, founding Malacca. Yeah. And from then on, they basically, to cover that gap, they basically said that Singapore then became a place for the pirates. Yeah. This bicentennial experience um, is an interactive experience. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if interactive is the word. It's, I mean, there's a lot of movement. There's a lot of people enacting stuff. There's a lot of like uh, graphics and, and video and all sorts of interesting things that's going on all throughout the experience. Um, I actually got chilled. Like, you know, the chills Yeah. towards the end. Oh, yeah. So, so folks, towards the end, I'm going to, you know, it's just spoilers here. Towards the end. Spoiler alert. Please skip <laughs> forward like 30 seconds if you don't want to hear it. Uh, yeah. Maybe more. <laughs> <laughs> so, towards the end, you enter a place where they will give you umbrellas. Yeah. And it's raining indoors. Yeah. And, you know, the sound effects and the stuff that they say, hey, 19... Was it 1965 or 1967 when we first had our first National Day Parade and it was in the rain yeah. and they actually thought of cancelling it but then they decided, hey, you know what? We are not going to cancel it and we are just going to go through it, stand in the rain and march through streets and or roads. And the music that played, I got chills, man. I'm not sure whether you got chills. I mean, I, I guess I did not know the context because um, when that was happening, I knew that they were talking about that period in time but... I didn't realize that the rain was like a big part of that story. You know, yeah. it was only afterwards when you told me, it's like, oh, it's about the you first know, National Day Parade. It actually rained right. and they were thinking of postponing it. But right. uh, someone basically said, no, we're okay. going we're gonna to go through it. So, 
yeah, so I felt that the over the over the running theme of of the experience was all about resilience and talking about this, and it kind of goes back to what you said earlier about how a lot of these things can be quite political in nature because um, let's let's be honest. I mean, a lot of history tends to be political in nature. There's always this element of uh, wanting to portray you know oneself as you know the victor, you know the champion. Um, if I could tell you my experience about studying history in India, um, we study a lot about you know ancient history and you know medieval Indian history and all that. And then there is one entire year dedicated to the freedom struggle in India. There's a lot of stuff that we covered. So it's like the first year. So when I was 12, there's like one whole year which is ancient history, and there's one whole year of medieval Indian history. You know, it covers you know the Mughals and all that stuff. And then you have uh, modern Indian history, which starts from 1800. And so like, basically whenever the British came over. And- yeah. And that 200 years is worth a year's worth of study, right? And we cover a lot of it. And one of the things about that particular year was that there was this intense sense of nationalism, patriotism, like everything that the freedom fighters did was incredible and amazing. And I'm not devaluing what they did. I mean... India during the time before independence was going through a massive struggle when it came to trying to win independence from the British. And um, a lot of shitty things happened. You know, the Indian people at the time had to struggle through a lot. Uh, But at the same time, the narrative was always to the tone of, you know, we overcame all these odds. And even as an Indian person living in India, studying Indian history, you know, I could kind of sense that this was a lot of Propaganda. Playing the victim? Not playing the victim. uh, Propaganda, essentially. Because one of uh, the overarching themes in learning about Indian modern history is to the tune of we overcame everything, despite all odds, you know, we overcame them and rose up and then stuff like that. So, um, and a lot of history tends to be like that, especially when you're looking at the modern context, right? So, and this is a question that I want to ask you, Suraj. Like, we know that this happens and all. But reading the book, 200 Years of Singapore in UK, I sensed that, you know, the local historians who contributed to the book and even the folks from Britain, I can't recall names, but um, even those folks who were writing from the British perspective kind of took a step back from that propaganda voice, so to speak, and tried to retell events or, you know, recount the history in a more objective manner. What did you think? So if you're to just ask me about the book itself, I would perhaps say that it's about 60% of modern Singapore. I, I mean, about the British. 60% they've always been, it has been a good thing that happened to Singapore. Mm-hmm. But the other 40%, it's all, you know, the shit they've done. Yeah. But then it's up to the reader, the reader to decide like yeah. whether they want to focus on that 40% only, or that 60% of positivity. Or put it both together and say, hey, yeah, they did some bad stuff. They did some good stuff. But all in all, we are where we are. It's because of the history. Yeah. And uh, the book, in my opinion, the book basically says that, yeah. I, I, so the book is basically telling you, okay, what has happened in that 200 years or so? And it just tells you that's what happened. Um, so they're not trying to paint a pretty picture or a really bad picture. But it's just for them to tell the user, so this is what happened and what are you going to make make out of it? I find that such an interesting viewpoint, Suraj, because until last year, I know I've had conversations with a lot of people where colonialism has been 
considered a good thing, period. And the general sentiment- no, I mean, The British did actually treat the locals or the commoners as second-class citizens yeah. anyway. So, so the thing was that, but before this, right, it was always like, it was a net good. It was you know, a net benefit and all that. And then I think the conversation was always about, oh, it's because you know all this infrastructure is provided to us and therefore it was a good thing. And I understand that completely, but I guess I came into that conversation with a bias because once again, and I've mentioned this to you before, uh, I'm Indian, went through the Indian education system, and we have some very strong beliefs about what colonialism was, right? Obviously colored by a lot of things, by our history, by the struggle, by people that we know who lived through that period. Um, and so when I hear things like this, I, and when I sincerely believe that colonialism is a bad thing, and when I hear that you know, colonialism is considered good, like something in me goes, what the fuck are you talking about? But only after reading through a lot of this do I realize that as with everything in life, there, it's not black and white. There's a lot of layers. There's lots of shades of gray. Um, and, you know, I do believe and I do agree with you in that this book covers a lot more nuance than history used to. Yeah. So in, in Singapore, in history, I mean, in our, the history class that I've been, they've never actually talked about the British being bad or good. They just talk about, hey, the British came here, they did this, 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 this. They never talk about whether it's good or bad. Okay. But this book actually covered like certain things they did which were good, certain things they did which were bad. Right. And one one part about the book, spoiler alert again, that I really liked and they were really honest, I guess it was from both sides, the British and the local historian side, was basically saying when the Japanese came into Malaysia, mm-hmm. the British officials, they all they were already scared. But to to prevent any panic, they basically said um, Singapore was uh, impregnable. Impregnable? Yeah. yeah. Impregnable, yeah. Yeah. Uh, to basically assure the locals and the foreigners who are living in Singapore to just go on and do their daily stuff that they used to without any um, stress. And that was actually a lie. I was taken aback because right now you were to ask any Singaporeans, they will blame the British for the fall of Singapore. But then again, the officials knew they were going to fall. Yeah. But the lie was so well done that everyone on the streets, they were just going about their normal daily life. Yeah, and I, I, was, I found that surprising too because what the fuck, dude? Like if there's an impending attack and if, you know, let's say governments or the military knows about it, motherfucker, prepare for it, man. They, they did, they did. <laughs> okay. They sent two warships over. Okay, oh, I feel like I forgot this. Okay, go on, go on. But the Japanese destroyed them. Ah, right. And, and there were no contingency plans, right. And I think there was also the fact that you know, they kept up that facade of being impregnable yeah. so much so that when they actually fell, um, there was a collective sense of betrayal among the, the local population. So um, even if you don't want to show weakness, it makes sense to prepare for the worst, right? But then because they wanted to keep up that pretense, all this happened. And that's what actually gave rise to the anti-colonial movement in Singapore. So uh, that is subjective because if you were to read the book, uh, I mean, yeah, you did read the book, right? The fall of Singapore, basically when the British left Singapore, they immediately based, almost immediately had a war room yeah. of how to govern the whole Malaysia peninsula. Right. Um, and how to slowly let go of this peninsula and let them govern on their own. Yeah. And that was immediately after the, uh, their fall. But then what also happened was after 1945, there were a lot of local 
um, what's the word? Hardy would be the best way to put it, but they were essentially like insurgent armies. Uh, the MCP, for example, I think it's the Malayan Communist Party. Yes, so the MCP played a really active part during yeah. the World War. Yeah. Um, after the World War, uh, they basically formed a government. When, yeah. I so, wouldn't say government, but a party, yeah. Yeah, so like, and it goes back to what you said about how the British had a plan to actually figure out how to get these uh, regions to self-govern because the British government at the time realized that they were they didn't have the same power that they did before 1942 and so they and, gave and to be honest this actually is not covered in our school that, I, hey, I you can, know what the british actually had a war room based uh trying to hey okay uh once they already knew they were going to win back uh the whole malaysian uh peninsula right they uh, they already had a plan to win back and they actually went ahead and think forward about okay we gotta give it back to them and let them govern themselves and they had a plan on how to do it so I'm not sure whether because of the MCP and because of the PAP or because of whatever, but I think all of these different factors somehow came together and it worked. That's all I guess. Wow. Uh, no, no, it, it was great. Like I especially loved reading that part, you know. Um, obviously, there's a lot of stories that I did not know. Like what actually went, uh, what actually happened during the Japanese occupation. You know, between 1940 and 1945, I've heard stories, sure, but it's always been this nebulous, oh, the Japanese army came in and, you know, it was a period of great suffering and all that. But this book covered some very interesting stories about it. And reading the book is the first time that I heard about the, the Suk Ching. Seriously? Uh, yeah. I, okay, that I'm, was covered in uh, the Our History book. Okay, because I've that never is, heard it before. That is like a major thing. In, uh, okay, okay. So they're always talking about the Chinese massacre, which is the Suk Ching. Yeah. Uh, but... And the Malays and the Indians. But the, in Malays and Indians, they were usually sent to this thing that's called, it's apparently called the Deaf uh, Railway. Or okay. Railroad or something. Right. Whereby they they were sent there to basically create a, a railway. Yeah. And many of them did not return because. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the thing, right? So, okay. So for context listeners, um, the Sukchik massacre uh, is about the time when the Japanese army occupied Singapore between 1942 and 1945. At the time, it was a period of great suffering for the locals in the island. And um, the Japanese army made a concerted effort to seek out people of Chinese ethnicity. and Because uh, of China, though. Yeah, and then gun them down because of their ongoing, um, because their ongoing enmity with uh, China at the time. Regular Chinese civil civilians were... Randomly picked. Yeah, were picked out. They were... Um, shot down. There were there were like mass graves, and it is not talked about much in the context of modern Singapore, but in this book um, they do cover it in some detail, and it's, it's it makes for very fascinating, if um, gruesome reading. And yeah, and that is actually the first time I heard about it. I did not know. And I guess the second part, the second time you heard about it was at the at the bicentennial experience, where in the bicentennial experience, folks, uh, they reenact. Uh, an experience of uh, a, a survivor, yeah, a survivor, a Singaporean Chinese man who was like taken out to be shot, but he managed to escape. He like swam further d down sea, and he stayed underwater for like hours just to evade patrol boats and stuff. And just seeing that being played out uh, was like wow! It it was uh, it was quite something. And my only thing is that if yeah they focus on the Sukchin massacre, but they have never focused on the other races. Mm. 
And I was mm. actually... Uh, mm. Like, the minority Singaporean speaks. <laughs> <laughs> They've actually never focused on the Malays and the uh, Chinese. I mean, the Indians, sorry. But... They in, fo- the, in the book, they do. They've only said they just went to, you know, create the... Yeah, but there's this whole thing about, you know, them doing this death march, right? So they were made to, like, walk to ostensibly towards the railroad, but um, they were counting on the fact that most people would not make it. And yeah. those who did were made to work and that yeah. they would die anyway, right? Yeah, so, I mean, they focus more on the Sukshing massacre, but right. not about the death railroad much. Okay. And... But I guess... Is it because they're Chinese? <laughs> I'm not going to say that, dude. <laughs> yeah, I'm cutting this out. But uh, I, I think m- maybe it's because the bicentennial experience has is is largely uh, you know a positive representation of the history, and the Sukching was a pretty dark chapter. And I don't know. Do you think perhaps they didn't want to like make it too dark or too grim? Because they they kept it quite PG thirteen. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they had to. Man. I mean, did, did you see like the five year old kid? And <laughs> I mean, yeah, did you see like the amount of kids over there? And, mm. and what, what do you think about the whole ball throwing thing? And well, so I, I what know. What were the three things they were like? Okay, so one was um, multiculturalism. Uh, one was not some resilience, it was something else. But the last one was self-determination. Um, and that was the one that. Okay, was, so folks, uh, so after you finish this whole journey, which is an, about an hour long. They'll bring you to another place where they'll give you a ball itch, like a stress ball. And you'll have to throw it into, or no, I wouldn't say throw it, but put it into these three options that they give you. That basically asks you, what do you think represents Singapore the most? And I know mine was multiculturalism. Uh, What about yours? So was mine, yeah. But apparently, and after you put your ball in, they'll ask you to go around that and you can see the counters. Yep. So apparently self-determination is number one. Yep. Multiculturalism is second. And the final one is, what was the final one? There was one? something else, um, but it was about the same as multiculturalism. So it's like these three characteristics, of course, describe Singapore and Singaporean society. But you know what my personal opinion is? It's like multiculturalism and the other one, you know, kind of represents Singaporean society as it is today, right? And self-determination is like one of those things that you want to show other people that you have, right? So it's like it's it's like saying, um, are 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 you are you successful, right? No one's gonna say that they're not successful, right? So it's like even if you're not, you want to put it there because that's like the aspirational ideal, right? And I kind of feel that they made it so purposely. I'm not saying that it's it's why not why, the case. why would you say that though? Well, so it's like so self determination is a big part of the Singapore story, right? Mostly because of historical circumstance and it's there and I understand that completely. So as far as, I mean to say that we had no resources, we had nothing with us. Exactly. Our only resources were the people that we had. And, and you know, willpower and like, you know, the need to just survive. overcome them and survive, right? So there is that. But I felt that at that point in time, right? That at that point in time, yes, self-determination. But right now, I think it's more about multiculturalism. And that's what I felt. But the reason why I feel the way that I do is because Right before we were doing this, right, there were two kids in front of us, right? So these two young boys, um, Singaporean boys, and the youngest boy of the two was about to put a ball in multiculturalism, right? And then his brother, I presume, the elder brother says, no, 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 you're supposed to put it in self-determination. You know, and I was like, fuck, dude, you're come supposed on, to? <laughs> come on, dude. <laughs> I mean, it's like having your own say, man. 
So then I was like, ha, okay. <laughs> no, but not to say that it was not the right thing to do because at the end of the day, all three were pretty high up there. It was just that self-determination had like- The most- Yeah, it was most by a second margin. was uh, multiculturalism. And then no, the, the third was the lowest by a huge margin. What was the third? No idea. Uh, but multiculturalism uh, and self-determination, they were almost neck to neck, but perhaps uh, self-determination was about 2,000 more. Yeah. And oh shit! Now the other one was extremely low. What was the third one then? Shit! Yeah, like uh, apparently not important for enough for us to remember. Oh shit! It was an interesting exercise. Coming yeah. back to the book, right? Yeah, I, I think we kind of said we are talking about two different topics, yeah. but it'll kind of linked up perhaps in the next episode or so. Yeah. About the book, there was this thing that basically said the very first riot in Singapore was not about the, it was not about- It was not the Little India riots in 2013, mind you. <laughs> and <laughs> the not, only important riot. <laughs> and, not the, and not the riots in 65, 66, 67, yeah. but apparently the riots in the 1800s. Okay. Okay. Could you tell us a little more about that? So, so it was basically the Indian army regiment or yeah. Indian regiment that was sent over from India to Singapore yeah. to more or less be the defense of Singapore. Right. Because um, I think it's important to understand the context. Um, in the 1800s, Singapore and the Malayan region was under what was called the Indian Administrative Region. The East India Company. Yeah. And it was, you know, administered by the East India Company. So um, it is the it is important to note that the East India Company was aligned with the British government, but they were essentially their own thing, right? So they- They were actually stronger than the yeah, British government. They were like, apparently, I, I read this article which said that the East India Company is the largest, the richest MNC in history. And to be honest, they're still a brand that, that's called East India Company. Wow. What the fuck, you really? It, there is. What do they, what do they sell? Uh, clothes. What the fuck? Clothes, shoes. Uh, yeah, that's about it, I think. This is so historically outrageous because the reason why a lot of um, Indian farmers, you know, went through a lot of suffering was because the East Indian Company took over the cotton industry. Uh, the tax, the lagan that they call yes. it. What the fuck? What? Talk about being tacked. Tacked. tacked <laughs> motherfuckers. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah, but... um. Yeah, let's go back to the riots. Yeah, yeah, yeah go on, Suraj, you were saying. So they, so they basically sent two regiments of uh, Indian soldiers over to Singapore. And somehow or another, there was a conspiracy to basically kill the British people yeah. in Singapore. And that's how the riot started. I think the whole riot lasted for a week. Yeah. And about how many people actually got killed? I think it was only about two or three. Well, it was like a bunch of people were killed. And I think two... Um, people from Britain were killed. So I think that's what really escalated the matter because, you know. Once yeah, um, so what they did was uh, they actually called a martial law yeah. to ensure these guys, they do not go around hurting any more people. And once they were caught, the whole, the whole two regiments, they were sent back to India. I thought, no, I thought they were, ha they were hung. I mean, they, not they, the uh, whole two regiments. They were, they were not hung. They were, they were, they were sentenced, sentenced to death by yeah, hanging. Yeah, but not yeah. 
everyone from the regiment. Only oh, a really? selected few okay. that uh, was were the main culprits. Because I thought what they did was, man, I feel like we need to read the book again. Um, like I thought what they did was that they they sent someone to death by hanging, and then they they cut him up into pieces and sent him to different parts. No, wait, I think I'm mistaking Dude, it for a movie that I watched. You are getting too gory, bro. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so clearly we have been reading different books. <laughs> so I'm so right now what I'm doing is I'm showing uh Rindo the East India Company brand. What the fuck? I mean, I know it has been like a century and I know that it did not live. Dude, through it's this, time to move on, bro. I oh, man, it's so hard, dude. I I don't take breakups very well. I mean, the, the, the thing is like um I, I guess the thing is that learn from history, but don't dwell on it. And don't forget history, but move on. Forget, uh, not forgive, but don't forget it. There is one other person I know who said the same exact thing. Who? Lee Kuan Yew. That is exactly what he said. And this is what differentiates, you know, Singapore from the other ex-colonies. So, you know, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, every single colony was going through the independence movement and they were, you know, they broke free from, you know, the British rule and colonialism was painted as a bad thing. And it got to a point where many ex-colonies burned down a lot of the, you know, statues. and The buildings. effigies. Or... Yeah, all that stuff, right? Lee Kuan Yew took a different approach. Dude, it, Lee, what I do understand, like after independence, the first country that we actually went for to ask them to create um, the, or rather establish the companies in Singapore were the Japanese. Yeah. I think Lee Kuan Yew for, and he he was, and here's the other interesting part there in the book, right? He was a staunch anti-colonialist. He did not want British rule. He he grew up, he studied in the UK. Um, he hated what was going on. He wanted to break free. But when it got down to the welfare of his country, he was like, yeah, you know what, guys, let's move on. You know, we know this shit happened, but let's figure out what we need to do. And listeners, for context, Singapore was in a very precarious time at the time. Uh, it was, um, you know, it just broke free. It, it was just separated from Malaysia. Like no, there uh, was no, uh, no period in a sense. Yeah. So, you know, it yeah. <laughs> actually, yeah, which is pretty sucky, right? Like, and um, so this was an island without any resources, without any wherewithal to survive on its own. And Lee Kuan Yew decided to let bygones be bygones, you know, remember the history, but at least move past it. And that has become... I guess and that's why we still have national service, yeah, because of what happens in the history uh, in the past, yeah. But yet we are willing to do business and have relationship yeah. with countries who may have may or may not have done wrong to us. And that is also the reason why Singapore is one of one of the only, if not the only, ex colony that still venerates a colonial icon. Stanford oh yes, Raffles, yeah, right. And guess that, what? I actually yeah. found out there's actually two 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 um. Two statues of him. One is in front of uh, Victoria Concert Hall. Okay. And the other is uh, next to Singapore River. Wait, the, the one that we see is the one right next to Singapore River? Yes. And there's one outside Victoria Hall? Yes. Wow. Okay, I did not know that. It's interesting to note that when all of the other countries like tried to put, a, put this image of, you know, we don't want the fucking British, you know, Singapore is like, yeah, you know what? Shit happened. Let's fucking, you know, move on. Let's with the program. accept it. And move on to the program, right? There's another interesting tidbit from the book. Um, S. Rajaratnam, who was the first uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs in, in Singapore, wrote in his memoirs, and which is quoted in the book, saying that 
it was important for Singapore at the time to establish a national identity because there was a risk that Singapore has always been a multi-ethnic and multi-racial Yeah, dude, there were even Japanese like trading here. Yeah. And, and no, in our school, they don't actually talk about it. But it's it's always been like a melting pot for all of its existence, right? But what S. Rajaratnam said was that post-independence, after 1965, there was a real risk that the people living there would... Living here. Yeah, sorry, yeah. <laughs> living in, in 1965 Singapore, but yeah, living in Singapore would somehow go back to their cultural default. Because Singapore always being a cultural melting pot, like there's always the risk of them, you know, going back to, let's say the the, the Indian community going back to India or the Chinese community going back to China. And so there, there needed to be a national icon, which was neutral. Which was the HDB then, right? No, no, they, they wanted an icon that was neutral outside of the- Oh wait, races. shit. So that was the Stanford Raffles. That was Stanford Raffles. So S. Rajanathan was that Stanford Raffles as an icon for modern Singapore was done because of the political exigencies of its time. And I was like, whoa, motherfucker, <laughs> you know? That's a smart move. Yeah, so, and so this actually changes a lot of things, right? So when I first came to Singapore, I was surprised by how uh, colonialism was supposedly being venerated. But now reading this, I realized it is not about worshiping colonialism. It was about, yo, dude, at that time, it made sense. We're going to go with it. You know, let's do this. You know? And I was like, yeah, that's actually quite pragmatic. Okay. I mean, Singapore has always taken the pragmatic approach. Yep. I think that we should actually acknowledge the past, but, you know, move forward and not be like how South Korea and Japan, they're doing right now. Shit happened in the past. Yes. But are you going to just dwell in the past and stop doing business with each other or have relationship with one another? I think that's a dick move. It's, it's a complicated situation for a lot of countries, Suraj, because it's one thing to move past it, but there's always going to be a lot of people who have been personally affected by it. Um, I'm going to take the example of you know my home country, India, and you know Pakistan, right? There's a lot of you know cultural history. There's a lot of cultural affinity. There are still families on either side of the border, and in a lot of ways, we are one people, right? But because of the politics and because of the history. And because a lot of people who suffered, who are still living, you know, that is still alive for us. And so it can be quite hard to move past um, some some atrocities that happened during that time. So, and I, I think like Singapore has its own example, right? The, the race riots in the 1960s, right? It was such a seminal moment for Singapore that a lot of things in Singapore that we see today was defined by the fact that we don't ever want to have the race rights again. So you mean to say the the race in our IDs? Yeah, and race in our IDs, you know, uh, not just quotas like, and all that. Like it's, people different, different from different ethnicity yes. going to school together, being yeah. tolerant of one another. Yeah. And a zero tolerance for anything that would incite okay, maybe, racial maybe, or religious okay, Maybe it's just me being like, you know, uh, what's it called? Um, being too pragmatic, I suppose. Oh, well, I mean, that's, 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 that's who you are. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe a lack of the empathy. <laughs> that's but. your national identity. But no, it's, uh, yeah, what I'm trying to say is that sometimes it can be hard to move past some open historical wounds, you know? Give it a hundred years, that'll all change, you know? Like a hundred years from now, my great-grandkids would probably not even care about what went down. And I mean, I, I would say not forget it, 
but don't let it affect your future. That's the ideal that we all strive towards. But in a lot of ways, sometimes it can be difficult. It's it's an ongoing process, right? So, yeah. But um, yeah. Before we wrap it up, tell me, Suraj, what was your favorite part of the book? The favorite part was about during World War II, mm-hmm. how the British actually had a plan, a, a war room plan about what are they going to do post-war. Okay and the uh, Malaysian Peninsula. And I'm not sure whether they actually kind of guided the guys to do what they want to do. Like, I mean, the locals, uh, Lee Kuan Yew, or maybe, maybe they they were the puppet master, or maybe not. I do not know. <laughs> but it's kind of interesting how they actually had a plan, and that plan kind of worked out, uh, you know, coming to, ni- throughout, like, coming to 1965. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the thing. Like, if nothing else, folks, Please get the book. Um, okay, we are not marketing the book. Yeah, no, no. You know, we have no skin in the game, man. You know, it's like <laughs> but it's really shit. interesting to right. just get a different point of view, I yeah. suppose, rather than what we learned yeah. in our, I guess, secondary school. Yeah. Um, if anyone's interested in the book, reach out to us. Dude, yeah, we'll I, lend I, you I will, the book. I will lend it to you. Do read it because it makes for very fascinating reading and it adds a lot more layer and color to history that we often thought was lacking. And on that note, Suraj. All right. We'll catch you again. And as always, follow us on all the popular podcast platforms. Uh, Spotify, iTunes. um, Stitcher, uh, YouTube. Facebook. uh, Facebook. I mean, that's a link. Right. (laughs) But yeah, uh, this is Rindo. And I'm Suraj. And we are living it up in Lion City. Bye.